Welcome everyone to the Daredevil podcast by Fantastic Geek. We are the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me is a guy so dedicated to the show that he's gone down the Yakuza hole. It's Pete. Hello, Matt. P- Pete, come on, come on up. Hello. Yeah, you're almost there, Pete. Excellent. Did you find the bottom of the Yakuza hole yet? Not yet. But perhaps I should go back to uh, my cell and uh, and rot. The Daredevil Podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 207, Semper Fidelis, is brought to you by Garish High Rise Interior Decorators. Ask about our revolving door of prostitute special. It'll make you want to kill us. One more outburst and I'll hold you in contempt. Let's enter the evidence into the record and give the devil his due. Our teaser here, a sink, a man washing his face. We quickly come to realize it is Frank Castle. And as he's cleaning up, he's getting dirtied up in the courtroom there. Uh, The potential jurors are being asked about pre-existing opinions they might have about him and as he looks in the mirror at his bruised face uh we hear that he's an animal that he is a hero that he's a grotesque insult to the second amendment a fascist without authority that he ought to be applauded uh for putting the thieves murderers and muggers and rapists in the morgue as he begins to shave here and he is shackled to be brought into court there's references that he is the son of Sam or even Bernie Getz. Matt, are you familiar with Bernhard Getz? Absolutely. I believe he was a, uh, a, a white gentleman with a gun who was on the subway. Yes. And uh, either I, – I, my, my memory is he overreacted to four teens of color and, yes. and shot them. Huge story from, from my youth in, in New York City. Um, so that particularly touched a, uh, a nerve with me. Um, another woman says that, uh, the only thing protecting us is Frank, a gentleman who just moved his family to the city is now moving them out. And we get this excellent slow motion that begins here of Frank being brought into court. Uh, the judge, uh, mentions how 14 or I'm sorry 400 potential jurors have come through and if they can't agree together the defense and the prosecution on these 12 then uh, you know she doesn't know what she's going to do to them but finally they come to a consensus here because Matt in New York everybody's got an opinion about everything oh hey I love the judge here. She's got that tough talking New York attitude, if not the accent. Uh, certainly, are you referring to the Honorable Cynthia Batzer? Pete, listen, she might have she might have her show name, but to me, she's just the judge. Uh, there's also the line from one of the jurors a bit earlier on: "If anyone can kill in this town, where does it end?" Which that's the line that stuck out at me more than any other from the jurors because there's kind of no answer to that. I I think of the increase in the Marvel movie heroes that have been through New York. I think of obviously the, the uh, different uh, 
defenders, heroes that we've seen on Netflix. Uh, Pete, I've even heard heard tell of a guy who can uh, climb walls and 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 swing from building to building. The notion that this is all going on in the same New York. I think it's a legit question, even though we're kind of rooting for the Punisher and we're rooting for Daredevil even more because he doesn't kill. This notion of if anyone can kill in this town, where does it end? If anyone can go be a vigilante, where does it end? It's it's a reminder that for all these heroes that we see, we are kind of dancing on the edge of a very chaotic sword. Yeah, and as we bring Frank in with that great Punisher theme uh really heavy on the base to see him come in in the slow motion to keep that consistent and turn right in front of the flag we really begin to grasp what this trial's gonna be about we get the title sequence then afterwards we're at the uh nelson murdoch office the files have been sent by the da they're all mixed up it's a little games personship from the da's office uh, there's also talk about how uh, claiming Frank was insane or this the, the general uh, lawyerly idea of claiming that the defendant is insane has a uh, 0.12% success rate in New York. Uh, I wonder if that's a real number on the uh, 0.12 acquittal rate in New York. Maybe one of our intrepid listeners can check that out. Absolutely. We, ha- we have to have people... Not that uh, that are just in New York. We know we have people listening in New York. We gotta have some people who have, I don't know, easy access to that info. Um, there's are a nice besides clear... our paralegal department. Well, that, that that is true, but they they they're overworked from uh, working on working on something secret. Um, we get here a nice clear statement from Foggy. Uh, we need to prove in court the government has hidden evidence on Frank Castle. I know, Pete, there's times that we are a little rough on such direct exposition, but it does make everything clear here. That's why it's clearly stated. Uh, Matt also wonders if pursuing PTSD, uh, it, how that's going to affect their opening, which, by the way, they need for tomorrow morning. I like that they're upfront about confronting PTSD. We, as smart viewers, I think, figure okay this is going to be something they could potentially float it's armchair writing to say ptsd ptsd but that they confront it and that it's uh a couple scenes from now put away i think is um narratively expeditious as well pete what occurs next is kind of like a one-two punch that had me wagging my finger a bit at the show uh, we have this hurry up and hurry up some more. Matt reminds Karen that she should be careful around Frank. They smooch and it's all aw because she's perfect. Then Foggy comes out and reminds her to stick to the script. A reminder that she profoundly messed things up last time. Now I think that you and I and the audience as a whole are gonna 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 give her the gimme of she got Frank talking about his family, so now he's not gonna go for the 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 plea deal and he's gonna you know take the 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 witch reyes to burn with him we get why that is i don't think anybody blames her as a character but it was a pretty awful move as the secretary for a struggling legal firm to get the client riled up a client who everybody feels is guilty of some kind of crime and should pay for that i'm not sure that she riled him up to do that i think that is Frank as a character. 
I don't really see anything in their interactions that did that to her. So, so color me team Karen right now. Well, speaking of team Karen, we stick with her. She's at the jail. I thought it was a really, um, almost dreamlike scene as she's wanded and goes to the metal detector or rather in reverse. Notice what was taken out of the files, the paper clips, the paper clips, man, come on. You can't, you can't be bringing them into the, into the Huskow. At first, I thought it was going to be some sort of like, oh, um, the corrections officer. Oops, we dropped all your papers. I just like that they play this entire thing straight. She's a fish out of water. Um, the guards fish. are not. <laughs> um, the guards are not. It's all just as it should be, which is she's a scared person with a stiff upper lip going into a very scary place, which is jail. Uh, or I guess prison, because there's a difference between jail and prison, of course. Jail's, j- jail's where you go while you're waiting to see the judge. Prison is where you go when you're either on trial or serving time. Um, and this whole journey in results with her brought into the meeting room, Frank shackled to the table. Yeah, and I like, I think that's why I, I'm with Karen at this point. There's this cordiality that's gone on between them. Frank respects her, calls her ma'am repeatedly and uh though he can be short with her um when he refers to the uh the ptsd defense as you know an an insult not to him but to them the people that really suffer it that they want to label him uh to appeal to some s bag 72 uh jury in some s bag 73 court uh two s bag combo math (laughs) Pete, that's how it should be pete two at a time um really kind of nuanced response here from frank and it picks picks up with something you said earlier pete that they're setting up this easy writerly route of ptsd but then treating it with the utmost care which is not to use it as a plot device and this idea that what happened to frank didn't happen on the battlefield i mean that's that's really profound and that's that's something that i think gives strength to the notion of of service members and people who are no longer on the battlefield whether whether still serving or or uh retired from the armed services i like that they're going this higher road here yeah uh, even though well maybe not even though let me put that in reverse the writerly result of not going the ptsd route is what karen says that this hurts his ability to help the defense team on a defense plan and therefore you're giving your lawyers more lawyer things to do it actually you know it's a negative that's turned into a a better positive it's become such a cliche to reach for this and that the writing team here shows a the restraint and two the respect through the character of the people who have suffered that, that his didn't happen on a, on a battlefield. The ergo, it is not PTSD. So don't even attempt to do it to the point where she's got to walk him back and say, well, listen, if you don't cooperate with us, it's not going to be uh, a question of ever being able to bring the people that did this to you to justice. You're going to rot in your jail cell. And he gives her, the name of his old CO, his old commanding officer, Colonel Ray 
uh, Schoonover. By the way, Pete, you mentioned the uh, the writing staff having restraint. Of course they know about restraint. They wrote Kimbaku. <laughs> I don't know if it was these same writers. We could go back and check, but the uh, the previous episode. Indeed. Yeah. Actually, uh, two, two back. Two back was Kimbaku. Last one was Regrets Only. It's, it's all... It, it might appear to be all one happy blur, but we, we have the facts straight. Um, with Frank having offered up this notion, not of a character witness in the former CEO, but somebody who will vouch for his professionalism because he doesn't need the character witness because he doesn't need to discuss his change in character as a result of PTSD, which again, continues the nuance here. Um, Karen is kind of willing to play ball and reveal that there are some leads on his mysterious background. They're going to work on things together. I thought she had something to share with him, but it's made clear, I believe, before the scene is over that it actually is like, well, I don't know, I have all these files. Let's figure them out together, which is a little bit less potent, but probably what the story needs. Here's again where I'm going to disagree, though. He says that he's been over these files before, and she points out, well, you haven't done that with me. And the the special sauce of this show is Deborah Ann Wall's ability to straddle the, the legal world of Nelson and Murdoch and the human world of their defendants and be able to relate to them. And I just think that's the excellent thing that this actress brings. Meanwhile, Matt is dictating his first sentence of uh, a draft of opening testimony. Pete, it seemed that he left the recorder on as he got the call from Electra. I was all prepared for there to be some sort of, you know, Chekhov's gun story machinations. Oh, he's recorded Electra, and now Foggy goes back to check on the opening testimony and hears stuff or or Karen does. Nope, it's just they show him using the recorder. I guess that's more for the purposes of, look, he's using a real tool that uh, someone who is blind would use. Right. Um, versus it's actually like, you know, like they're showing a real thing as opposed to, ooh, this is going to be a, a, you know, a twist later. Twist. We're all on the menu. I, um, I appreciated it. I didn't see it so much as uh, a plot device as really just a reminder of the impediments that he faces to do his job. And when Electra is calling here, she's saying that she's found a lead, that there is a pervy NYU professor. Ugh, we're going to talk about the differences between NYU and Columbia in this episode, Matt. It's coming. Okay. Well, Pete, uh, the next thing in my notes, a pervy NYU professor, that's where you go when you can't cut it at Columbia, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. You know where you go when you can't cut it in the best city on earth? Where's that? You go to that other journalism school in Chicago, Northwest. Wah, wah. Oh, getting getting deep on the college inside bases ball here. It's it's gra graduate school, son. This is this is above college. <laughs> the big the big leagues, man. College, that's triple A. Anyhow, Matt doesn't want to hear all this exposition, uh, although he does have a great line that his life can't stop each time she calls, which um, it's the show has a really interesting way with Electra where it is able to effectively have its cake and eat it too. She's not the cloying traditional female character, even though she sometimes plays those story notes 
and this notion of like women crazy know what i mean they they have the shape of that sentiment without the follow-through of it it's 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 fascinating how they're using her but crazy strong and uh elodie young really brings that edge of oh okay you know uh you have something to do i'll i'll go take care of this and um it's what she's bringing out in matt though what she's brought out before and what she's currently bringing out that um makes him his own worst enemy pete what comes next i realize i've never written a couple of sentences like this so here we go turns out the professor really is pervy he wants to eat <laughs> chinese food off his korean uh ladies for hire and he says in Korean that he can't even tell them uh, apart. Wow. That's yeah. just Thank the you, ugly NYU. American and beyond. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, all, all respect to anybody who went through NYU. And we know that this is a fictional portrayal. But there's a reason it's not a Columbia professor. <laughs> Ouch. Pete, I think we can all agree, though, that he does have an awesome apartment. I had wondered if maybe it was a redress of a lecturer's apartment. Um, maybe it's a real apartment. I, I, I don't know. I kind of suspect with the broken window that you're not doing that up actually 30 feet, uh, 30 stories in the air. Regardless, um, the ladies leave Electra and Daredevil are there. There's some smacking him around, which coincidentally we don't feel bad about. Um, he gets in, he, he, he gets those smacks and he's asked to translate. He refuses. And after getting thrown into that glass window, the prospect of falling 30 stories to turn more liquid than solid gets him ready to help. What did you make of Electra goading Matt to punch the window and then him standing there? after the professor had gone over to to translate and she's walking him through when the glass breaks and and he just stood there and kind of listened to the to the whistling of the wind what did you make of that whole thing there i think that it is another instance where we see the effect that electra has on matt and there's kind of a slightly bewitching quality to her i might be inclined to step back from the story a little bit and kind of question some of the gender motive and this and that. And again, if, if there is a little bit of stereotype going into the character, but I don't think that the show leads you away from the narrative to be critical like that. I think we've all met people that can get into our heads, whether it's, you know, romantically, whether it's, whether it's, you know, just friends, whatever it is. And I think that that happens for real. And the fact that it's a, it's a good-looking guy and a good-looking gal, that's just the breaks there. And I think that he, um, he, it's another reminder that, you know, he was a couple more punches or a couple more shoves away from this guy just going through the window. But good old Professor Philip, Matt, we never get a last name. Uh, he will not only uh, look this over, he's going to translate it for them because uh, the daredevil wants him to do it for them. And he explains that he had taken the Japanese alphabet and run it through a cipher, blah, 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 that there are weekly shipments. The next one, conveniently, 11 o'clock tonight at the Bay Ridge 
rail yard. They're going to find a box car with a number on it. They will know then that they have the right train. It does not say what they are shipping. Also convenient is that he tells them how to use the decoding matrix because through the glass window comes a sniper's shot. Oh, wait, it doesn't. They were setting me up for that. And I'm not necessarily complaining, but I was just convinced that, like, now that he's explained to them how to do that, you're going to hear, you know, you know, zoop, and there's going to be, like, the 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 bullet wound, or there's going to be the dart or whatever, and they're going to look out, and there's going to be, you know, Django Fett or whatever is going to take off, and you're going to be like, look, <laughs> there's an assassin. we genres. <laughs> My point being, I was convinced that they were setting this up as another Chekhov's gun. Where now that he's explained it, he will die. And they didn't. So I'm not complaining. I was just pleasantly surprised. I didn't feel a setup. So I wasn't uh, surprised when that didn't happen. I was so taken aback still by Matt's over-aggression. Um, you know, when when Electra had, had said once more to, to have him punch just another time as he's shaking this guy down, that maybe that took me out of um any kind of tropes that might happen um but uh daredevil tells him to get better business partners and electra tells him to kill his decorator before she uh kicks him across the face um back at nelson and murdoch foggy is pouring over pics of uh victims uh, Karen comes back to the office, uh, offers to get him some food, but he says because he's been looking over those all day, he will never eat again. And the conversation quickly turns to where is Matt? Oh, yeah. Home working on opening statements. And Foggy delivers it in such a way that not only do we know he's not doing that, despite the fact we saw in the previous scene, Daredevil is out on business that he knows that's not happening. And we're feeling the weight of this trial more than ever on foggy Nelson. This is a dream team with one lawyer, Pete, as is increasingly clear. Wait, this is, this is Johnny Cochran, Bob Shapiro, Robert Kardashian, uh, F Lee Bailey. Um, hang on. I can, I can do the rest of them from memory. Oh, there's the one that the guy from uh, from, from Harvard no- Northern uh, Exposure, uh, Barry Sheck. Barry Sheck, uh, you got one more. Hang on, Harvard. I know Alan Dershowitz. Boom. And I'm not going to mention the the sub lawyers there, but there were were two others. But there you go. All from memory. There was no Wikipedia or anything else involved here, and that was that was done live. Thank you. As well, it should be. Um, Karen shares that Frank won't endorse PTSD and uh, Karen backs this up as being a false defense, which I think is interesting. It's probably worth mentioning at this point, especially since we've we've made uh, reference to the OJ case. Let's just be clear that a, a defense lawyers are there to defend you within the confines of the law. They're not there to bring the truth with a capital T. Um, there's no question that Frank Castle killed 30 or so people. The question is context and excusability and and deniability and all of those things. Um, or, or indeed the process through which uh, the, the prosecution is building their case, which takes Karen to telling us the ME report. That's 
medical examiner. It was filled out by the chief medical examiner himself. Frank had described uh, the dead family's multiple wounds with multiple bullets, whereas the ME said one shot per person. The story doesn't match up, but big deal, says Foggy. Frank was hit in the head, too. He's unreliable. Yes. So this chief medical examiner, Dr. Gregory Tepper, uh, he is scheduled to testify for District Attorney Reyes. And all of this has Foggy considering his longtime backup option of opening a butcher shop. But even though there's discrepancy, uh, he doesn't think that they can do anything with it. Karen argues that he is reliable. He's living the nightmare of a few seconds that changed his life. And this is the thing which solely fuels him, which I don't disagree with, but I don't think it's ever been stated quite so clearly that it's it's those couple of seconds that are the the semi-rational or mostly rational source of of the punisher, of his desire to punish. Uh, regardless, though, what's to be done, asks Foggy. Where's the proof? What she's arguing is tangential and inadmissible. Oh, I love when they get all lawyerly. <laughs> Unless they can get the medical examiner to speak the truth on the stand. It's a long shot to get the dirty doctor to crack on the stand. Now, as long as Matt polishes off that great opening statement, they have a chance. To the rail yard we go where... But wait, uh, that's not where you work on opening statements. It's not where you should work on your opening statements unless you're uh, in a trial about uh, rail cars. Um, but Matt can tell through his senses that there is one car that is uh, very much full. There's no negative space. It's all uniform and it is so heavy that it is buckling the tracks and every car forward from it is the same. They open the door and dirt spills out. Do they know we're here? Uh, is this a decoy? And suddenly excellent parkour stunt work to uh, kind of like ping pong up the rail car and uh, they're running in the opposite direction from some not Yakuza. Interesting that you should say that because I termed it as a neat but imperfect shot where Electra and Daredevil were wired up between two train cars. I thought it was erring on the side of obviousness with the wire work there. Um, it not was a huge unnatural, but I appreciated it in the context of the characters. Agreed. Agreed. The Yakuza, or at least what we're still calling the Yakuza, follow not them. Yakuza. The not Yakuza. Uh, it's a pretty good fight scene that breaks out. Yeah, we have some more wire work happening there. This time a little bit more restrained. No pun intended. Um, it can't be argued, though, that Matt and Electra ha do have a great chemistry while fighting together. They do. And when ultimately the, the fight ends here and they've beaten these not Yakuza, uh, she's hurt. She requires... Um, stitches which uh matt takes care of back in his apartment she's worried will she scar uh she'll never have short hair again here but uh he tells her that you could uh tell everybody that you were fighting the yakuza she brings up how they make a great team and they quickly center in on his very prominent scars in this scene i mean he's appeared with his shirt off before but i can't ever remember it being 
this prominent and it's to go through the history of the character that well these are uh what russian knives do you at least i think they were the russians this is yakuza actually a ninja named nobu oh nobu you mean nobu yoshi aka i know him by at least his reputation this whole scene there's a there's a really wonderful edge they walk where it's about closing the space between them it's about suggesting an intimacy without sensuality uh when her arm starts to bleed again he holds the towel against her her wound holding her close when she's tracing his scars she's close to him um just this i don't know again there's kind of this emotional intimacy there he moves off the couch to let her sleep he keeps guard as she sleeps and the camera kind of takes the point of view of his senses our eyes moving over her body and whatnot oh mama (laughs) and then he's late for work can't can't brother man just said take out the iphone be like boom set an alarm for 7 a.m um i like the line that they walk here as well he's dressing saying he's really late it's not quite clear how late he is at this point i thought they were kind of gonna get him to the church on time so to speak um she says she's going to look at the exports and wishes him luck. Uh, and then we move to the court. And I love the pacing of this scene. The judge is addressing the jury. Matt's not there yet. Reyes is going to address the jury first and uh, calls Castle judge, jury, and executioner. She reminds the jury that the, the victims that he killed are not on trial. Justice comes from courts, not lawless vigilantes. She calls Frank a serial killer and guilty and even though her opening statements are barely longer than that recap, I like to think that it's not just neat TV doing that. It's a smart woman realizing that the defense is not ready, so she's going to speed things up and send them to them unprepared. Yeah, and I like the way that they pace this too. You know Matt's not going to arrive in time. At least you're you're believing that's not going to happen. And by the time it comes down to Foggy and talking about college stress dreams and everything there and the excellent selling by Eldon Henson at the beginning of his opening statement of the, the stammering and the yammering, um, to finally find his center and to go with the narrative approach. Here you are, you're 19, you're in the sand, you're surrounded by enemies, um, you you're have uh, orders, your, your duty is of the highest priority, but it doesn't end there. You have people back home who uh, you know rely on you and love you. You're a decorated Marine, you're a good husband and an excellent father, and when you return, your family is brutally murdered. So it's not so much of a trial against those victims. That's the low-hanging fruit that Reyes rightly pours, uh, points out. It's a trial about uh, Frank Castle as a person, what he did, and what he was pushed to do. Really, I think, to mitigate his uh, sentence, not so much to to get him out of this, but like Matt uh, referenced in the previous episode, to soften. Mid-delivery of this opening statement, Matt arrives. I love that Foggy keeps going. 
again, hammering home this notion that Frank was chewed up by the system, and Foggy asks the jury to keep an open mind. We then cut to what is presumably a break from the court action. We're outside the courtroom, Matt apologizing profusely. He, he thinks up this great new idea of going after the medical examiner. Foggy reminds him that they, or at least the other two, have already come up with that plan. Matt, Matt just has faith in his ability to turn all of this into a win. And we're fully on Foggy's side here. There's just kind of this notion of I'm gonna I'm gonna don Draper my way out of it. You can you can win a court case by just by just digging into your heart. It's it's all heart. No, you, you need prep. You need a defense strategy. You need the late nights. You need the paperwork. You need all your ducks in a row. Scene beats usually occur in an episode in threes. Rarely do you get two. One is just solo and to see the stressed out foggy in the previous um scene where he was preparing not giving the opening statement but preparing um his defense without matt now with matt matt having missed uh giving the opening statement that uh, Foggy was not prepared for Foggy hitting the home run and and Foggy still there with Matt, which makes that third beat the one that occurs later in the bathroom, the, the hammer. Back in Matt's apartment, his apartment really, y- you only need to see this once. No, we're setting up some kind of love triangle action here. Uh, Karen, it turns out she's really good at all this legal stuff. Matt kind of almost uh, puppy lovingly, puppy dog lovingly saying that she too should go to Columbia Law School, make it Nelson Murdoch and Paige. Uh, she recounts the night they first met, her fears overwhelming her until he and Foggy gave her trust and hope. Oh yeah, she also met that man in black that day, you know, the devil of Hell's Kitchen. Does he believe in what the devil's doing? Hashtag, where did Clark go? Look, there's Superman. <laughs> um, this scene is all about the slippery slope of what Daredevil does and that Karen is appreciative of his types of efforts. There's also still that hanging subtext that she is somebody like Frank Castle who has taken the law into her own hands. She murdered Wesley at the end of last season, and she still has not faced any kind of justice for that. And it's still out there hanging, Matt. Whether she will or not remains to be seen, but it's something that is clearly on the character's mind. He, of course, goes for the the full defense of belief in the law. Uh, She wonders in this really nice escalation here if there's a higher law that the vigilantes are are accessing, some sort of natural law perhaps. But Matt believes in the highest power of all. Only God can decide such things. Only God can decide who lives and dies. But what does Karen believe? Only God can judge me. (laughs) Um, What I thought here was believable and also a little damning of matt when they reach this spiritual impasse matt decides it's time for her to go home maybe after the trial they can have a real date he he kind of almost kicks her out like you know like um the guilty walk home style where it's like (laughs) all right well we we did the thing and the thing didn't go the way i thought it would so um goodbye 
you need to leave now conversation that finds its way organically to beginning with him talking about how maybe she might consider uh law school at some point but she doesn't like the loopholes she doesn't like that the truth is lost too often uh and even though foggy and matt know some uh, good people at columbia because there's a lot of good people that come through and, and go to that school um you know he doesn't believe in vigilantes at least he says to her he doesn't believe in vigilantes so it's kind of the lady doth protest too much methinks but here it's the dude protesting too much you see what they did matt they took a shakespearean convention and they flipped it the dude looks like a lady or the lady looks like a dude (laughs) um that's shakespeare right after karen has left it turns out electra has been listening not at all she just heard the whole part about law school and then the whole part about you know when they first met and then the whole part about talking about god and whatever and then the whole part where she had to leave but Matt says that Karen is really important to him, and she's kind of vaguely spurned, Electra is, so she moves on with, with almost like exposition Mahoney-type type speed. She has information on the Roxxon Troubles, sites that could be uh, used to move such badness. One area stands out in particular, the Midland Circle site. Hey, that was acquired by Nobu. And maybe... Yeah, that address, the 44th and 11th address, the... Um... The tenement that was swallowed up by Wilson Fisk that he was acquiring to give to Nobu. Remember, there were some some deals being made uh, why uh, Fisk was involved with the Japanese there and what Nobu could do for him when he had this escalation of Daredevil through the, the various uh, gangs and uh, crime families in the previous season. Um But with that out there, uh, he can't go do this. He's got to prepare for tomorrow. And I love it that that Electra says, okay, I'll do the recon. You you stay here and work on your homework. In court the next morning, we see the medical examiner. He's a nervous, sweating Nelly. He's stammering and referring to his notes. Pete, Matt is up to now question him, and for good luck, Foggy is crossing everything, not just his fingers. I, I Hopefully we don't need more info than that. Um, here we are in familiar territory for the character. Matt listening to Dr. Tapper's heartbeat and kind of, you know, gleaning what he can from it. He asks just a few opening softball questions, and with that, Tapper is ready to confess something the judge clears the gallery of spectators. The jury is sent away. Castle is taken away, too. We get some kind of jump cuts as the courtroom is yeah. emptied. What's on his mind? Uh, the defense's line of questioning is right, says Tapper. He was warned by animals to fix the case reports. The judge confirms that the castle findings were uh, were changed, along with a John Doe. Why is Tapper spilling his guts? He was threatened last night, threatened by a woman, a woman with a foreign accent. Yeah, who kinbakued him, tied him up, Matt. Uh, and uh, her face was covered. We clearly know who this is. Nobody else does. Um, Reyes thinks that maybe the defense had something to do with this to coerce her witness. Um, There's the uh, idea of a mistrial floating around here, but the judge ultimately moves to strike 
his entire testimony and to instruct the jurors to disregard anything they have heard from this medical examiner, Dr. Gregory Tepper. And the the cruelest cut of all, with that testimony thrown out, loose ends taken care of, the judge simply declares the prosecution will call its next witness tomorrow. The case is moving on without any substantive win for Nelson and Murdoch. Matt and Foggy wind up in an adjacent bathroom and proceed to have a knockdown, drag out fight uh, where Matt first confesses that it wasn't Reyes who um, moved to threaten or contaminate Dr. Tepper. It was Electra, you know, from college. Your ex girlfriend? She's insane. It is kind of screenwriting 101 that here in the middle of the season, things should go from bad to worse and and personal relationships will be tested. That said, I, I let me put it this way. With willful suspension of disbelief, I did not see this fight coming. Now, of course, it was kind of building, building, building throughout the episode. But, you know, the word I love to use, Pete, organically, they reach this point where, of course, these two battle-hardened friends who know how to, you know, know how to do the lawyer thing and who have taken down Wilson Fisk and who have juked and jived with D.A. Reyes for the last, you know, a bunch of episodes here. Of course, this is going to reach a breaking point here, regardless of what they need for, you know, the seventh episode in a 13 episode arc and all of that. It's it it's it's it. It's so organically achieved at, and of course we're on Foggy's side here, which I love that the show is making us take the side of the everyman and not, you know, the super-powered guy who also graduated Columbia Law School and as a small business owner. We're not on his side at all. It's wonderful. I know we're not in our sidebar segment, but your honor, I'd like to approach the bench. Is this double jeopardy? This is the second trial between Matt and Foggy in as many seasons. Matt, this is Nelson v. Murdoch 2. Well, all I would say is this, Pete. I guess they they need to work on their on their lawyering skills. They need to work on being a partnership. And um you know, all of Foggy's comments we're right along with. No one makes you go out and fight bad guys in the middle of the night. Yes, we've kind of heard Matt's side, which is, you know, each time I go out, I save someone. The flip side is, yeah, and there's also people you don't save. <laughs> people outside the New York area might not know that there are five boroughs to, to New York City, and he's kind of hanging out in Hell's Kitchen, you know, which is middle of Manhattan Island. There's other things going on that... You know, the show can be kind of uh, narratively blind to because fine, that's not our focus. But Foggy's, you know, calling it realsies here to say you don't need to go out every night to save every last person because you're not saving every last person as it is. Uh, Foggy also calls him out on being the absent lawyer and reminds him that Electra will count on him for nothing at all. Not Electra will count on him for nothing at all. He will count on Matt for nothing at all. Oh, that, that, that was an errant S before the he. Um, absolutely. I mean, we see here what could be under other circumstances, the fracturing of the, of the partnership, etc. And uh, 
out in the hall, you know, they both go storming out. Foggy isn't talking to Karen. Matt isn't telling her much either. Now, Pete, I just want to talk to, uh, I don't want to talk to, to the gentlemen and maybe some of the ladies in our audience. Here's a little tip for when you're dealing with your special lady friend. Not telling her what's going on in your life, probably not a good move. In fact, I could tell you, not a good move. Not a good move move in the least hashtag fantastic geek romantic advice (laughs) uh you got to communicate and you got to communicate with your legal partner you got to communicate with your love partner (laughs) so true as well as your staff while not setting yourself up for a sexual harassment lawsuit yes anyhow matt tells her while not telling her much, I'm sorry you're caught in the middle of this, but right now I have to go. I'll see you tomorrow. Not a good move, bro. Not a good move. I want to return to the Matt Foggy stuff just a little bit because I think there was some important exposition in the midst of their argument we didn't touch on. Okay. That uh, the, this is the daughter of, of, of Electra. She's the daughter of a diplomat, that she was a debutante. So these are things we might have assumed, but now have been spoken on the show. That uh, his, Matt's, um, torrid relationship with her which we've seen snippets of nearly got him expelled from law school that he almost missed their final because he was hurt so bad and not uh intimated that that was a physical hurt but it was an emotional hurt so he's shocked apart from daredevil being daredevil that Daredevil is being Daredevil with Electra, who thinks she's Daredevil. It's a really good observation. I'm glad. I'm glad we circled back to it. I think the the kind of oh, you almost missed the finals because you were so heartbroken. That's that's a certain level of concern. And I think that you know we've all been in our twenties and we've all made romantic mistakes and you know, all of that stuff. But I think to a more important point, the fact that the fact that this was an entire year of law school or semester at law school where he was where the apple cart was upset to a point that his future vocation was was at risk to me that's almost the more shocking because you know like oh i'm so sad i don't know if i want to go to my final but you end up making the right decision okay you know we've all we've all had those dramatic moments but this is somebody who almost cost him his livelihood in advance of the degree to make the livelihood possible so so Foggy's incredulity is all the more understandable. And the fractured nature of the end here, you lied again. You were the one who wanted to take this trial. A, a fair point, too. He's he's led them into battle and then and then disappeared with delusions of grandeur. The narrative continues with night falling, Electra's watching the baddies, Daredevil arrives ready to fight her over the damage that she's caused. There's a great line there that that he is both halves of his life, he owns both halves of his life, and he is not the the one or the other that she is proposing. Which is clearly nonsense. He is not in control of either half of his life, not his professional, not his private vigilante life he is reacting in both 
they end up attacking the Yakuza guards. Well, I say they, but she, of course, holds back a little bit. Matt smashes uh, one of them up against the scaffolding while uh, taking out two more. Um, it's especially uh, an especially nice end to the fight. The goon hits into the scaffolding, which collapses on him. Pete, I worry sometimes that the show risks suffering from fight fatigue just because there's all these wonderful fights. None of them are going to be the the hallway fight from the first season or the stairwell fight from this season. But uh, what they do give us is potent. And I just thought that, that that zinger at the end of, you know, two or three stories of scaffolding falling on the guy makes a, a good fight great. Right. And uh, by the time they wind up in the building or the structure, whatever it is, um, they find this massive hole. Why are the Yakuza digging this hole? They drop the flashlight. Did it hit the bottom? No, says the guy with enhanced senses. Tell me when it does. And we just get that silence to end the episode. Wonderful. Jackson, you're already badgering the witness. Well, what do you want me to give him a testimonial dinner? Who brought the heat into Hell's Kitchen in this episode? We begin with that pervy NYU professor. What a fun character, albeit super despicable. Uh, I mean, just they don't waste any time to make it clear that he is offensive. He is uh, he's racist. He's uh, sexist. <laughs> he's a criminal <laughs> or he's supporting or ex- with criminals. Yeah, absolutely. He's he's supporting an exploitative anti anti feminist work uh, situation there. And. And I think that we can dislike him and have have fun with him at the same time. But he likes Chinese food and he is an admirer of beautiful women. So he has redeeming qualities. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, I wonder, I, I mean, I know you know the answer, Pete. So I'll just ask rhetorically to our audience. I wonder if we'll see him again. Um, you would imagine that at a certain point, the guy that made the code is going to be matched up with the people whose code was broken to uh, to negative consequences. I will say nothing. I will say that I am taken to calling him, absent a last name in this episode, uh, I am taken to calling him uh, Triple P, uh, Pervy Professor Philip. Ooh, what a name. How about the not Yakuza, Matt? We're, we're absent a heavy in this episode. And, uh, you know, to, to get two fights here with, uh, this gang, um, you know, largely faceless, what'd you make of that? I like, if nothing else, that they're still calling them the Yakuza. I mean, we have to have some kind of name just for, for we, the audience, let alone the characters who don't know the big secret yet. Um, I also think it's possible that the lower level uh, enforcers, if that's the right word, that they believe they're part of the Yakuza. They don't know that they're part of secret Yakuza. Kind of reminds me of that other show that we podcast, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., where it turned out that all of S.H.I.E.L.D. was being run, uh, or at least substantively run, by Hydra. Do they do that same story route? I mean, I don't know. I'm sure they have numbers to say what the crossover is between S.H.I.E.L.D. and Daredevil. 
I think it's also it, it's a fair game if you want to do the switcheroo twice across two different uh, series. But uh, maybe they are Hydra Pete. That would be that would be super fun. Just thinking where I think we might be headed with uh, Agents of Shield with Civil War. Do we have a a a, a meeting of the the sides and all of that? I I would like to think so, but we've talked many times about why that's difficult with the, some of the corporate stuff between Marvel films and Marvel TV and all. Oh, that. My lips are sealed. Your Honor, may I approach the May I approach the bench? It's time to step aside and approach the bench to discuss some off-the-record theories. You be the judge. So, Pete, let's stick with this state that we've discussed before, this state of of freeze or love or interconnectedness or lack thereof between Marvel television and Marvel films. We've discussed many times before on a variety of our Marvel podcasts how after Age of Ultron, uh, Kevin Feige convinced the Disney brass to give him sole control of Marvel films, the movie division. And that is now its own division in Disney, which is separate from Marvel, which is everything else, the comics and TV and in particular, this has led to, you know, us talking about how that's all been separated, but there was news in the last uh, couple days, how uh, Alfred Woodard and Jim Rash have been added to uh, the Captain America civil war cast. Uh, Alfred Woodard, who, has already been announced has a role in the Luke Cage show. So a, I would assume that they have a very small role, but it sounds like these universes could be coming back together. All the more reason then maybe is the not Yakuza, you know, could they be Hydra if we're headed towards Hydra stuff? Could we be headed towards something that is influenced by civil war? Uh, I know, you know, Pete, but again, I ask for the, the great unspoiled majority out there. There is increasing pressure uh, from without and within to kind of reunify the uh, TV and film sides, if you will. And how ironic as we're heading into a filmic civil war that there's this split between these two divisions. But there's been pressure placed. Uh, it does not help it does not hurt that uh disney and its um management situation has a similar situation going on right now as uh the heir apparent to bob Iger has bolted and now people are angling within the company and from without the company to uh try to be the next head of disney so um we're just going to have to see, or at least you are. Well, Pete, I will mention this. The the source in which uh, it was noted that Alfred Woodard and Jim Rash have been added to the cast list, that comes from the, uh, the press invite for the world premiere of uh, Captain America Civil War. Just want to point out that after the entire list of people from the film, there's a whole list of special guests who have, uh, you know, uh, a past with Marvel films. Top of that non-alphabetical list is none other than... Clark Gregg, Agents of Shields TV star, um, with with many other fine actors uh, later on in the list, including among others uh, John Voight, uh, the whole you know bunch of the cast from Shield and uh, and Daredevil. So 
I take some I take some some good spirits there that he is top of the list for the special guests, not in the film, but uh, invited nonetheless. And that's how it should be. And this is not fanboyism. Uh, this is reality. You could color it any way you want when I say it, but understand it is what it is. Civil War will uh, be a victory lap for Marvel Studios in the battle of uh, comic studios, and it will uh, help us to realize that the bat versus the Superman uh, yawn of justice was all a bad dream. Pete, I've said it before and I'll say it again. When you treat these properties with love because you are a a creative force as much of marvel films is they have their their comics background so they appreciate these characters they they want to use them in respectful ways and iconic ways when you love these characters you use them well in the movies when it's part of a corporate flow chart as i really think is the case for how warner brothers views top down the dc comic properties and movies and whatnot then you get these imperfect these imperfect things there even was an article today saying that Warner Brothers is looking at the problems but won't make any changes to the future movies. So then why are you discussing problems? That That's where we're at on that end versus, hey, we need to reorganize corporate rise. Okay, we need to re reshuffle to make the best product, which will make people, you know, make the company's money if the fans are happy, if it's fresh and new and wonderful. So Let's talk within our episode here, Matt. We'll begin with the minor mystery and move to the major one. The John Doe brought in with uh, Frank Castle's family. First time we're hearing about it. What's up with that? Yeah, the way it was mentioned, it was one of these kind of uh, bits of exposition that's sticky enough to stick with you, but it's not not big enough to chew over. So initially I was like, uh, oh, yeah, his family plus the John Doe, who is Punisher. But then you kind of think back and go, but why wouldn't you just call it Frank Castle? Or, or, or if it's if it was him, why are they making a point of it? The whole family was brought in. Castle was the only one to survive, as you know, could be the dialogue. So all of a sudden it's like, well, what is that? What does that mean? Um, I, I almost don't dare guess. I mean, the one guess that comes to mind, Pete, is uh, the iconic Punisher villain Bullseye? But how he's so did awful. you know what I was going to say? Because Pete, we both come from the foundation of the Batfleck Daredevil movie, which just misused the the worst part of that ill-conceived movie is how they take a great actor and misuse him as Bullseye. Our bigger mystery, Matt. What's in the hole? I don't know. The notion that this flashlight is still dropping, dropping, dropping. I mean, if that's a if that's a dodge, and I haven't seen the next episode, but if that's like, oh, well, it's actually a bed of feathers down there, so you wouldn't have heard it. <laughs> like, that would just be dumb. It needs to be, do you realize, Electra, that this is a quarter mile deep? Because, you know, insert whatever mystical or technological or criminal enterprise going on is going on um they, they have to sell it for its bigness i have no idea i feel like we're looping back to some of the mystical that was mystical nature that was floated with the uh 
the boy in the uh, in the shipping container last season, the the Madame Gao moment where she disappears, suggesting a mystical nature. I know that's where we're headed with Doctor Strange, and there's an aspect of that in Iron Fury and all of that. Um, Iron, Fist. Iron Fist, pardon me, <laughs> Iron Fury. I almost lost my geek card there. Iron Fist will bring the Iron Fury. There you go. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I feel like part of what's so delicious about this ending is it could be a magic dimension hole or it could be a really really deep hole that they're gonna blah 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 you know it could be it could be any of these things um two things one let's uh at least keep it clear madam gao chinese yakuza nobu japanese so keep our you know uh our asian uh groups over there clear and our listeners there um know that we can tell the difference unlike triple p uh pervy professor uh philip uh who it's all the same to two matt cover your ears uh, okay uh we all know that everybody talks about being able to dig a hole to china well they've dug a hole to japan can i come back now pete Sure. Oh, okay. I, I I took I took my headphones off there, and then I realized I could I couldn't hear when I was supposed to come back, so I just guessed. We've been using our enhanced senses to monitor the frequencies. Here's what you had to say. We'll begin, Matt, on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek with the PH all one word where Pierces Shanker co-host of the tomboy T rod spelled tirade, but pronounced Matt T rod as we um, well know, as we well know, as we were honored to be asked on as uh, guests last year uh, writes in, I have got all capitals to get this season soon i hear only good things can't wait to find time to binge pete so great to have heard uh from pierces definitely what's what's nice about the netflix model is even though it's it's uh released worldwide i believe daredevil season two was the first one that uh netflix released in in all all its territories simultaneously uh, you can't always make the time to get there, and uh, what's nice it'll is that it'll be there. And Pete, totally unplanned, I have a comment here about uh, one of our podcast joints from another other podcaster. This comes from Moo Points Pod on Twitter. That's uh, Doctor X and Sammy Mead. We've been uh, enjoying sampling their uh, their pop culture podcast and. Uh, they had to say that they were on episode eight of Fantastic Geeks, Jessica Jones podcast, and it is truly fantastic. These guys uh, get it. Everyone listen. I can't stop. So definitely appreciate the podcast love there for one of our other uh, Fantastic Geek projects, keeping it in the Marvel Netflix family. And uh, I know before we know it, we'll be back talking Jessica Jones. That is, of course, after we're done talking uh, Luke Cage, the season four premiere of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the season three conclusion of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the rest of Daredevil, oh, and the secret thing we're doing this summer. And and stuff planned for next week and, and all sorts of stuff. So busy times here at Fantastic Geek. But 
absolutely flattered there by the praise. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I mean, we we love Jessica Jones. We we love our defenders, our street level heroes here in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And uh, you know, Fantastic Geek isn't going to take on a podcast we can't do. Uh, a good service to so uh, thanks for listening and uh, we're looking forward to bringing you more a discussion for the future and maybe we want to have people uh, weigh in on this you know we'll give the contact deets in a minute but what is your favorite marvel tv show because i know pete you and i off air were having the discussion and you were surprised a that we differed and b that uh be what my choice was so we'll just kind of let that be a tease for the future. But uh, love I'd to hear like from other to see people. people weighing in with what they think our favorite uh, Marvel TV show is. So uh, let's let's create the hashtag. Let's call it uh, Fantastic Geek Favorite with a PH favorite. Spell that there. <laughs> That'll be the hashtag. And we want your favorite Marvel show. And predict for each of the hosts what you think our favorite Marvel TV show is. Well, and we'll a, see who gets it. Yeah, that's a fun game. Maybe, you know, end of Daredevil or over the summer, we'll, 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 uh, we'll discuss the, uh, the teenage, teenage television universe uh, uh, as it stands and bring all that in. So exciting stuff, Pete. And Pete, you know what else is exciting is that uh, we have people helping us out on patreon.com slash fantastic geek, helping out with the, the podcast costs that happen along the way, bandwidth, storage, techity, tech, tech, etc. And, uh, you know, we just don't have a little box like a lecture does where you just hold it up to the camera and make things loop there. The, the, there's real stuff going on here, Pete. So I want to say thank you. Uh, to uh, to everybody helping out there and to the people who have gone there, checked out the, the different uh, goodies that we have to say thanks. And uh, we want to say thanks again. The dial has been spinning over time there on our page, and we're so appreciative that people would even consider, uh, let alone uh, donate to our uh, Patreon account. And we're constantly thinking of things to include there. We're going to be dribbling out uh, additional, uh, perks as it goes. There's some great ones we feel there now, uh, certainly worthy of at least your time and checking out. Pete, always worth checking out though, is your Twitter. How can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter P I E T E R J K L R K E T E L A A R 7,487 followers can't be wrong and while i am looking back lost on twitter you can be in touch with the podcast in a variety of ways all of which we are fantastic geek that's fantastic with a ph that's your gmail your dot com your twitter your instagram and more pete facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek all one word with the ph you go on the website you click the little like button we will always be connected well pete with that i will say adios to our listeners until we chat again maybe you're listening to us on the pop culture podcast and uh well i guess on both on both feeds next up is going to be some more daredevil but uh, we'll be back again next week talking Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Daredevil, some other goodies as you've teased. Uh, it's an exciting time to be 
to be talking to our listeners. So I will say adios one and all and give you, Pete, the final word. Ugh, I dropped my flashlight. I'm back.